Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. I think everyone in life wants to be successful. I don't think there's any sort of um, argument about that. Everyone, no one wants to fail. No one wants to um, not make it. Everyone wants to be successful. Um, but the, the problem is not only that sometimes we're not successful uh, and sometimes we don't know how to be successful. The, the problem is also, it's a bit deeper than that, because it's also that even sometimes when we are successful, we <laughs> sort of end up discovering that's not good enough. Um, I mean, just, just one way to, to sort of see this is so often you, you get guys who, are, who seem to be very successful. I mean, they, they got all the trappings they make lots of money. They've sort of um, climbed the ladder of success, if you will, um, successfully in their jobs, uh, you know, got the house and the car and, uh, you know, all, all, all the accessories and stuff. And then when they sort of get around my age, around 40, they hit a midlife crisis because they realize that, oops, my life is already half past halfway, <laughs> And I'm not sure that even my success means anything. In other words, there's a difference between success that is meaningless and success that is meaningful. And we know that and we can see that. And, 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 and we don't, even if we don't, even people who don't quite know how to define meaningful success knows that there is a kind of success that is meaningful. And then there's another kind of success that is just meaningless. Because no one wants to get to the end of their life and then look back and say, my life was wasted. My life didn't mean anything. And you know, it's shockingly, scarily easy for that to happen. It's so easy for us to get caught in the rat race, to get caught in that metaphorical hamster wheel and, and, and you're going you know, at 100 miles an hour but you're like a hamster running in a wheel and it's just going round and round and round and it's meaningless. And even if you keep that hamster wheel going and you get paid well for it, <laughs> you're still just a hamster running in someone else's wheel. That's not meaningful success. That's not meaningful success. Or, you know, the old way of, the sort of stereotypical way of describing it is that so... So many people, you know, are very good at climbing the ladder to success only to discover at the end of their lives that the ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. And they put in all this effort. They put in all their whole heart and soul into it. They were passionate about it. They worked hard at it. They sacrificed for it. And then they get to where they wanted to get and they realized it's not where they needed to get. It's, it might have been success, but it was meaningless success. It's not meaningful success. And, and, and that is a terrible thing. I mean, I, I don't know how it feels because I'm not at the end of my life yet, hopefully, you know. Hopefully, if God is good to me, I still have a couple of years to go. Um, but I, I, I think it must, be, it must be really difficult, you know, if you get, you know, to your later years and you look back and it feels like your life has been wasted. I, I, I can only imagine it must be a terrible feeling. And I'm sure a feeling that none of us want to experience. Um, 
And, and we're going to look at a passage from Ezra chapter 7 that, that shows a guy who didn't only experience success, but whose success was really meaningful. And we're going to try and learn a few lessons uh, from his life. So I, I just want to read to you from, from Ezra chapter, chapter 7. You can just put it up there on the screen, just the first 10 verses, in fact, not even the whole 10 verses, because I... The first five verses is like a big genealogy, so I'm going to skip part of that, just sort of highlight the important part of, of the genealogy. It says in Ezra 7, from verse 1 to 10, um, Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Seriah, uh, and then skip a few other son of, son of whatever, and son of Aaron, so he's descended from Aaron, the chief priest, and then verse 6 says, This Ezra went up from Babylon. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And they went up also, with Ezra in other words, to Jerusalem. In the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the, the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of God was on him. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. And to teach its statutes and rules in Israel. Yes, Father God, we just want to thank you, Lord, for your word. And thank you, Lord, that your word is living and powerful. And that we can learn so much from it, Lord. Uh, how to live lives that are not only successful, but actually meaningful. And we pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, that you'll come and, and teach our hearts and instruct our hearts. And at the beginning of this, of this new year, Lord, direct our hearts, Lord. And, and as it were, point our hearts in the right direction, Lord for this year and for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So what's going on here? The book of Ezra um, starts, um, the background of it was that in around 586 um, before Christ, the Israelites are taken away by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into captivity uh, in Babylon. Almost all the people are taken away as punishment for their sin because they had forsaken the Lord, turned away from the Lord, no longer worshipping Him but worshipping false gods, no longer serving Him. So they're taken away by, by, um, in 586. And, but there was a prophecy that um, you know, the captivity would only last about 70 years. And so you have, in the beginning of, of, of the book of Ezra, there's this account of how Cyrus, now you know, they're no longer under the... Uh, you know, Babylonian kingship, but they're now under Persian kingship, as you see here. Cyrus, the, uh, you know, a, a different king, gives this decree, and he says, it, it, God, the God of heaven, the God of, the, of Israel, basically, has spoken to him, Yahweh, um, has spoken to him and said he must send his people back to Jerusalem. And he sends them back, and in 516, exactly 70 years, as Jeremiah prophesied, the temple is rebuilt in 516 before Christ. And then what we have here, you have, you have Cyrus the king, and then you have Darius the king who makes a similar proclamation, also sending guys back. And then finally you have Artaxerxes the king, a third king 
also sending Israelites back with a decree in line with God's word. And Ezra is part of that, that wave of guys going back uh, to Israel. And, and he's a priest um, to go and help establish the temple of God. Now remember the temple is the place of worship where the people of God worship God. Um, it's the place of encounter where the people of God encounter God's presence because the temple is the place where the presence of God abides. It's the place of sacrifice because if sinful people are going to encounter a sinless God, you've got to deal with that problem somehow. And it's the place of learning. It's the place where instruction in the ways of God happens. And, and this is what Ezra, the priest, you know, descended from Aaron. He came to, to help do um, under instructions of, of King Artaxerxes. So, so there's this, it's as it were a new exodus. Remember, Israel started as a nation in, in Egypt, and they came out of Egypt under Moses, exodus towards the promised land. But then they're taken into captivity, and they're sort of in need of a new exodus. But this exodus happens, happens in phases. But even this exodus is only sort of a shadow of the real new exodus, which points forward, which, according to Isaiah, starts with a voice crying out in the wilderness, who is John the Baptist, announcing, prepare the way of the Lord. What way? The way of the new exodus. Okay, So it's a kind of new exodus, but it's actually also a picture. And bear that in mind. We're going to get back to that in, in the end again of the real new exodus. Um, and, and, you know, Ezra is sort of a figure like Aaron, the first high priest, who's, who's um, fulfilling the priestly duties. So what I want you to see, and I, I just want to focus for, for a start on Ezra 7 verse 9 and 10, because I want you to see three elements there which are very powerful and which actually are repeated earlier in the, in the section, which show us, that, and they're three related, sort of logically, elements that follow logically on one another. Um, in other words, the, the text connects them to one another and, and, and that the, the author of Ezra wants us to see. Listen, just listen to this. It says, uh, For on the first day of the first month he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand... Notice the four. Four. So in other words, his travels were successful. Just like his requests to the king were successful. And it says, four, the good hand um, of his God was on him. And then there's another four at, at the beginning of verse 10. Four, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach its statutes and rules in Israel. Just go to the next page, the next slide. And I, and I want you to see sort of that outline that's what the author wants us to see. He wants us to see that Ezra experienced good success, whether it was the king granting all his requests, or whether it was him arriving, and I mean from uh, Babylonia to Israel, was a, a long journey. And in those days, it was, it was dangerous to travel. But he had a successful journey, and not only him, but the people with him. In other words, the point is Ezra experienced good success in fulfilling his calling. In fulfilling his purpose. And then he gives us the reason why Ezra experienced good success. It says, for the hand of God was on him. And that's also repeated twice. Twice it says, the king granted all his requests and he arrived safely in Jerusalem, for the hand of God was upon him. And then it says, for, it gives another reason, for he had set his heart on the word of the Lord. 
So it says that in, in verse 9 and 10, but it says, if, if you go and read verse 6, you see exactly those three, same three elements there as well. Let me just read that to you. Um, and the reason why the author says it twice is because he's trying to emphasize it to us. He doesn't want us to miss the point. He doesn't want us to miss these three things, and he doesn't want us to miss the relationship between them. So it says in verse 6, um, this Ezra went up from Babylonia, and it says, he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. There's that commitment to the word. He was a skilled scribe, a scribe that was learned, well, well-versed. Um, literally in the Hebrew, it says he was quick. He was, he was a scribe that was quick in the scriptures. I mean, in other words, you know, you could ask him a question about the scriptures. He knew it so well, he could quickly answer it and quickly get to whatever um, part of scriptures you were talking about because he'd studied it. Okay? So they, they, they translated your skilled, the scribe skilled. Um, in the scriptures, um, because he'd committed himself to the word of the Lord. Um, so it says he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, uh, and it says, and the king granted him all that he asked. He experienced good success, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Can you see that, those same three elements and the same relationship between them? So we're just quickly going to look at those. The first one is that... Um, Ezra experienced good success in even in areas that he didn't have control over. Even in areas that he didn't directly control, he experienced good success and favor. And he experienced good success and favor in areas that were necessary for him to fulfill his calling and destiny. So just, just a few of them. The first one is, it says that... Um, you know, the king granted him all that he asked. Now, now firstly, this implies a few things um, that I just want to unpack just very briefly. Number first, it implies that he had a high position in the Persian court. Okay? He had access to the king. It's not just anyone who can talk to the king. <laughs> okay? The king has lots of bodyguards and he doesn't, you know, you know, allow anyone just to come close to him. So he clearly had a very high position in the Persian court. Okay, that's, that's the first thing to notice. You see the same thing. I'm not going to read it now. Um, but in verse 14 and 15, it, it, there's actually a part of a letter that the king wrote to him and gives him instructions as a, almost a diplomat or a, or a pointee by the, from the Persian court to go and do certain things on behalf of the Persian king and, and his, his counselors in Jerusalem, you know, take gifts and so on. So, so he had this high diplomatic position. But then notice that he used that high political position to ask for things that were in line with God's will and God's word. That were beneficial to God's people. That facilitated this new exodus out of Babylonia back to the promised land. That facilitated the reestablishment of the temple and of the worship of Yahweh in Israel. He used, because I mean it's not just like, you know, King Artaxerxes said, oh, you know, uh, I wonder how I can, you know, uh, bless the people of Israel and their God, Yahweh, who, um, you know, whose temple is in ruins in, in, in Jerusalem. No. It says the king granted what he asked, what Ezra asked. So Ezra was the one who brought up the thing and, and asked for the right things. Okay? So, um, the king granted... Um, what, what, what he asked. But, but here's, here's something. I just want to read this verse to you. This is in, in chapter 6, verse 14. And this is a very interesting verse. It says, let's see if I'm in the right place. There we go. Um, 
and the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, uh, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edo. They finished their building, this is of the temple, by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. What those three kings, Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, had decreed was what God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, had decreed. In other words, the point is that Ezra used his high position to ask for things that were in line with what God had decreed. Because God had said, the people, his people must go back to the promised land. God had said his temple must be rebuilt, etc. So, here we have a picture of a guy who's... Um, so committed to the Lord that he's even using his position in the secular world, and, and Babylonia obviously was very secular, in order to ask for things that benefit God's people and God's kingdom and that are aligned with God's purposes, what God had decreed. Um, just notice something here, though. It's interesting that what the kings had decreed, what, what Artaxerxes first had decreed was in line with what God had decreed. Okay? But not only that, notice that three different kings, Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, somehow, coincidentally, ended up decreeing exactly what God had decreed. Okay? It's called a divine coincidence. <laughs> because God is the ultimate king, even over the kings. That's why Jesus is called the king of kings. And what he decrees eventually comes to pass. Um, and, and um, there are other things in, in, in the book of Ezra that also confirm that to us. But not only did he, was he granted all that he was asked, but Ezra received all the human help that he, that he needed. In verse 7, it says, And they went up also to Jerusalem um, in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. Some of the people of Israel, you know, some, some, just some of the, 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 um, the, the tribes and the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, and some of the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. In other words, not only um, did he have favor and receive the resources that he needed, but even the people. I don't like the term human resources because, you know, it, it sort of implies that you must treat humans like things, you know. And, and, I, and I think there's a, a definite qualitative difference between, you know, finances and people, you know. <laughs> but he received both the physical resources and the people resources, the people that he needed to fulfill his calling. Good success. In other words, the people, and obviously he didn't have, just like he didn't have control over the will of the king, he didn't have control over the will of the people, but the people decided to come with him. Every, everyone that was needed for the, for the temple to be established came with him. And why did both the king and the subject and, 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 and the subjects comply with, with Ezra. Um, and then the third thing is they, they arrived in Jerusalem safely and on time. In verse uh, 7 it says that they, they departed in the first month and they arrived in the, in the fifth month. Um, even though they were tra traveling obviously as a large group of families. So there were women and children. There were vulnerable people present. It's a, it's a trip of four months and, you know, the roads in those days were dangerous. You might say, okay, well, the roads here in Joburg are also dangerous. But I mean in a different way, you know. In those days you had all kinds of brigands and guys. I mean, they weren't like, you know, police and they didn't drive in cars. They traveled by foot. They traveled maybe on a donkey or on a, uh, you know, 
to taking the stuff in the car, they were very vulnerable in traveling, especially if you, have, if you were families with women and children who couldn't run and who couldn't fight. Very vulnerable to attack. And yet, despite that, they arrived safely in Jerusalem. Once again, something that Israel had no control over. Um, but the question is then, why? Why did, why did um, Israel experience good success in everything that he did, even in areas that he didn't have control over. And the, the text gives us the reason why Israel experienced good success. Israel experienced good success because the good hand of his God was on him. And that's repeated in, in both verse 6 and verse 9. It says that God's hand was on him. Now, just a few things I want you to notice. It says in verse 6 that the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Now, now firstly notice it's the hand of the Lord, the Lord who is, the, the word Lord there is obviously the translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. Now it's, it's the hand, basically, of the true God. There are all kinds of other gods, you know, but they're all idols. They're all false gods. They're not real gods. They don't have real power. They don't have real hands that they can put on you. They don't have real hands that can protect you. So it was the hand of the Lord, not just any god, it's not just his God that was some other, other God. It was the Lord, Yahweh. His hand, the hand of the true God, was on Israel. But that was so because the Lord was his God. You see, the Lord, we're going to see later on that the hand of the Lord is always active. The hand of the Lord is always powerful. The hand of the Lord is always good. But the hand of the Lord is not on everyone for good. But the hand of the Lord was on him for good because the Lord was his God. And there's that personal commitment that he had to the Lord. The Lord is always good. But not everyone experiences the Lord's goodness in a good way. Let me just quickly explain what I mean by that. Um... If you have, say you have um, a, an assault trial, you know, one, one man has, a, a man has assaulted a woman. If the judge, if, you know, if there's sufficient evidence and the judge finds the man guilty of assault, of assaulting this woman, he's considered all the evidence, he's weighed it fairly and justly and made a just proclamation, then he's a good judge. And he's made a, a good judgment but where the woman who is the victim experiences it as good, the perpetrator, the one who assaulted and who has to now go to jail, doesn't experience it as good. It's still a good judgment, even though the guilty party is on the receiving end of it. And it's the same with God. Um, so the hand of the Lord is God was on him. And, and, and God's hand, it, it says in verse 9, that God's good hand was on him. God's good hand, God's beneficial hand was on him. God's hand was on him for good, um, as it were. Um, and that's kind of a theme in, in Ezra. If you can just bring up that slide with a, with a few scriptures from Ezra. Because I, I just want you to see that, um, that there are few different scripture in Ezra, scriptures in Ezra 7 and 8, which, which basically repeat the sentiment of the hand of God being on them. In Ezra 7 verse 6, which we already read, it says, The king granted him all that he asked for, the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And then in verse 9 it says, And he came to Jerusalem for the good hand of, the, of, his, of his God was on him. 
Then in 8 verse uh, 31, we have sort of an expansion of it. It says, the hand of our God was on us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes on the way. In other words, as we were traveling, the reason why we arrived safely was because God's good hand was upon us. And he delivered us from all kinds of ambushes. In fact, just before that, it says, we, we were sort of ashamed to ask the king for an escort, you know, for, for, for men at arms, you know, for soldiers to escort us and protect us. Because we told him beforehand that, and we'll get to that scripture now, that, that God's hand is for good on those who seek him. So now we wanted to prove it. Now we couldn't like say, you know, <laughs> we need your protection because our God's not going to protect us. So they went without any soldiers, without any protection. They traveled this four months journey from Babylonia to Israel and they arrived safely because God's hand was upon them for good. Um, then in, in, in 728 it says, I took courage. This was when he was, was um, asking the king. So that expands on, on 7 verse 6 that the king granted him all that he asked. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I, gro- uh, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me to Jerusalem. And we, we see in verse 8, 7 verse 8, that he was granted that request and that those, those people did go with him. Um, in other words, he had the favor. And then in 8 verse 18 it says, And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and kinsmen. When there was a specific need and they needed skilled assistance in something, because God's hand was on them for good, God provided the very person with the very skill that they needed to fulfill God's calling for them as a nation. Um, and, and here we get to Ezra um, 8 verse 22, because this is, is, the, is, the, is the crux of it. You know, God's hand um, is always good, and God's hand is always active, but not everyone experiences it in a positive and beneficial way. And, and this tells us why, because this is what Ezra said, this is what we had told the king before we departed. It says, we said to the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. Now just note the parallelism, yeah, and then in that parallelism there's a contrast, but there are also things that are the same. The first, the contrast is, um, number one, that there's something which is the same, the hand of God or the power of God, and those are synonyms basically for the same thing, okay? But it's, there are two groups, those who seek him and those who forsake him. So there's the contrast between those two groups. And those two groups experience God's hand or God's power in contrasting ways. The one ex- group experiences it for good, beneficial, helpful, enabling us to do what, what we want to do because it's in line with God's will, because we're seeking him. The other group experiences it as the power of his wrath, which is against them and which judges them. And <clears throat> that brings us to, to the third thing, sort of the reason behind the reason. You know, if the reason why Ezra experienced good success was that the good hand of God was upon him, then the reason behind the reason is that... Um, God, I didn't see, so I'm not even going to ask. <laughs> the reason behind the reason is... Why? Why is God's hand for good on some people? And the answer is very clear. It's God's hand is for good on those who seek him. But notice how that is stated differently in Ezra's life. How does Ezra seek the Lord? It says, 
Ezra was granted all, all that he requested from the king. Ezra arrived safely. For the, hand, the, the good hand of God was on him. For he had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it to Israel. Study, do, teach. How do you seek God? Through his word. That's the point. How do you seek God? Through his word. By studying it, by doing it, and by teaching it. That's how you seek God. Now, I just want to clarify something here. Um, You can set your heart to study God's word without seeking God. But you cannot seek God without setting your heart to study his word. Okay. There are examples in Scripture of people who had set their heart to study God's Word, but, but they, they, they didn't want to find God. They, they weren't do, studying God's Word and doing God's Word, obeying God's Word, in order to have a relationship with God, in order to see God. They had other reasons for doing it. I mean, the best example is the Pharisees. Why did they study God's Word and try and do it? And they were very nitpicky about it. What was their reason? What was their motive? Was it to seek God? No. It tells, Jesus tells us over and over in the gospel, it was to impress people. He even says, let me actually read that to you in, in John chapter 5. There's a, a, a very striking scripture in John chapter 5 verse 39. Let me just find it. Yeah, here we go. It says, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes and stuff. Uh, and, and he says to them, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you may have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You're diligent in searching the scriptures because you know that the words of life are contained in them. But you refuse to come to me. In other words, you, you can search scripture without finding God in it. You can search scripture without finding Jesus in it. And there are many people like that. There are many pastors, I know, that search scripture, but they never find Jesus in it. There are many scholars who make it their life's work to study scripture in universities, you know, professors of Old and New Testament and of theology and all kinds of stuff. Many of them, not all of them, praise God, but many of them search the scriptures diligently and they never find God in it. They never find Jesus in it. Because they're not searching for him. You can search the scriptures without searching for God. You can study the scriptures. You can set your heart on studying the scriptures. But for a reason other than to seek God and to have a relationship with him. So I just want to make that very clear. You, 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 you can set your heart to study the scriptures without seeking God. But you cannot seek God without setting your heart to study the scriptures. In other words, the study of Scripture and setting your heart on Scripture is necessary if you want to seek God and if you want to have a relationship with God. There's no other infallible, undisputable source of knowledge of God and relationship with God than Scripture. Now, I'm not saying that's the only source through which God speaks to us. God speaks to us prophetically. He speaks to us through other people. But none of those other ways in which God speaks to us is infallible. None of those other ways in which God speaks to us are without error. If I prophesy to you, the Bible says, 
I see in part, I know in part, I prophesy in part. You cannot expect anything that I prophesy or anyone else prophesies to you for that matter to be perfect. It's not. And, and it even says in Scripture in, in 1 Corinthians 14, all prophecy must be tested. Why? Because there are going to be mistakes. And the same with, um, you know, the Lord speaking to you directly, you know, outside of Scripture. God, God can do that and He does do that. Those who are led by the Spirit of God, continuously led by the Spirit of God, are the sons of God. Romans um, what is it, 8 verse, verse um, 16, 17 around there. And that, that implies that we hear, can hear the voice of God, but, but that's not infallible. Scripture is the infallible way through which God speaks to us. So, the reason behind the reason is this. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek Him. And when we compare that to God's good hand that was on Him, on Ezra, for He had set His heart on God's Word, then we see that that is one of the main ways in which we seek God is through His Word. Now, for what reason is that so? I mean, in verse 6 it says to us, um, Ezra was a scribe who was skilled in the law of Moses, which Yahweh, the God of Israel, had given. Now, now that tells us a lot. Now, number one, it tells us that, that Ezra, firstly, because he was a scribe, a scribe was someone who could write and who could copy stuff. He had learned to read and write, which was not all as common in those days as it is today. Everyone didn't have to go to primary school and to high school and so on. It was actually very uncommon for people to be able to write. A minority of people could actually read and write. It wasn't that common a skill. But that was part of his calling. And bear this in mind that your education is part of your calling. Even if it's just something neutral like learning to read and write or do mathematics or play music. That in itself is neutral, but that can be very much part of your calling. Ezra would not be, have been able to fulfill his calling if he had not learned to read and write. So he was in Babylon and there he learned to read and write, number one. Then he was also a scribe who was skilled, or quick, like I said, in the Scriptures, in the Law of Moses. So he'd studied while he was in Babylon, and think about this, think about this for a moment. We already said that he had a high political position, so he was a busy man. He was working for the king, and somewhere in his busy schedule, he found time to study the Scriptures in order to become a skilled scribe who knew the Scriptures. He made that sacrifice to study God's word, even though he was very busy and didn't have much time. And secondly, even though he was in Babylon, which was full of false gods, full of distractions, full of all kinds of enticements, away from the things of God, he resisted those distractions and temptations and focused on studying God's word so that he could be a skilled scribe. A skilled scribe in what? In the law of Moses. And uh, it's interesting, that phrase, the law of Moses which was given by Yahweh the God, which Yahweh the God of Israel had given, tells us a lot, and actually summarizes something very important about Scripture. And that is this. I don't want to explain on this too much. If you want to know more, come to Bible school. <laughs> we do, for instance, Holy Scriptures and go a bit more in depth into this kind of thing. But it's, it's this. Just like Jesus was the Son of God who became a Son of Man, human in other words, so, the Bible is the word of God in the words of men. It's in the words of men. It, Moses wrote it. Moses was a normal human being. He wrote it, but it was given by Yahweh, the God of Israel. 
God inspired it. And the Bible is the only book in the world that you can say that of. The only book. There's no other book that you can actually say that of. And, and there's even for those of you who, who are skeptical, or maybe for those of you who want to see evidence, you know, you're like, you're like modern day Thomases, you know, when I see the holes in his hands, or the, the, I can put my finger in the hole in his side, then I'll believe, show me the evidence. You know, show me the empirical evidence. Well, it is there. The Bible, if you take the Old and New Testament, is the only book that contains credible, specific, fulfilled prophecies. There's no other book that contains anything like it. Multiple fulfilled prophecies. And not vague stuff like Nostradamus' stuff where he makes like vague utterances and then you can interpret a whole multiple of things possibly fulfilling it. I'm talking about very specific stuff. The Bible's the only book that has that. Okay? Because it's the word of God in the words of men. And that's why it's worth dedicating your life to, setting your heart on it and studying it like Ezra did. It's worth doing that because it's not just a human book. It's also a divine book. Um, and then notice the progression here. He says he set his heart. And just, um, no, let me not get that technical. <laughs> he set his heart. What did he set his heart to do? Three things. And notice the progression of those three things. To study the word, to do the word and to teach the word. To study the word, to do the word, and to teach the word. And that is such a powerful summary of the Christian life. I mean, if you and I could do with our Bible what Ezra did with his, we would be great disciples of Jesus Christ. We would learn and do everything that we need to do. Because we'd be committed to studying God's word, his whole word, everything in it. Making sure we understand it correctly. Making sure we're part of a community who can help us sort out our blind spots and our misunderstandings of the word. And constantly receive from one another and challenge one another and refine one another's understanding of it. We're committed to studying it as part of a community. Number two, we're committed to doing it as part of a community. Obeying it personally and having people whom I'm accountable to can help me obey because I know myself. If I leave myself to myself... I'm not going to do it as often as I should. So to do it, but then also to teach it to others. I mean, isn't that also what, what Jesus says, you know, in the Great Commission? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go then and make disciples of all nations. What are disciples? They're learners. They're students. They're apprentices who learn to become like him. How? By baptizing them, initiating them into the kingdom uh, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And all that I've commanded you includes the command to go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. So in other words, you, what you're saying is, how do you make disciples? By helping them be disciples who study the word, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, do the word, and part of the doing, what is part of the doing? Go and do the same for others. Make disciples. In other words, to teach other people. Study, do, teach the word. Can you see how powerful that is? Can you see how powerful it will be if we commit to doing that in our lives? And Bible school is just one tool to help us do that. And that's why we're inviting you and, and making such a big issue about it. Equip yourself to study the word. Because you're not born with the ability to study the word. You're not born with it. It doesn't come naturally. And, and so often we do study the word, but we do it with the wrong 
technique. You know, I used to play tennis. Wish I had a tennis racket so I could illustrate to you. But in any tennis club across South Africa, you go there on a Saturday afternoon or morning afternoon whenever the club plays, and you go and play tennis there, and I can almost guarantee you there'll be some other lady, you know, probably in her 60s or 70s or something, who has an upside-down backhand. Have you ever seen an upside-down backhand? <laughs> it's, a, it's a strange thing, you know. Um, you have two grips, uh, two main grips in tennis. You have a forehand grip, which is on, on one side of, of, the, of the racket, and then you have a backhand grip, which is on the other side. But the, you have people who've never gotten coaching usually, and they, they, they only have the forehand grip. So they learn to play the forehand, and then when they have to learn to play the backhand, no one ever told them to change their grip. So now they try and play the backhand with a forehand grip, but, but you can't play it like this. So then they turn the racket upside down, and they play an upside-down backhand. It's the strangest thing in the world. And there are, there are wonderful old ladies who have been playing that upside-down backhand for decades. And they play that upside-down backhand as well as you can play an upside-down backhand. But their backhand's never going to be as good as Roger Federer's. Never. Why? Their technique is wrong. Why? Because practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. Practice only makes permanent. Yeah, that saying, practice makes perfect, it's wrong. Practice doesn't make perfect. It only makes permanent. If you practice the wrong thing, you're going to make the wrong thing permanent. You've got to practice the right thing. And that's why we say, come to Bible school, learn how to read the word right. Because there are many people who are very committed to reading the word, but they've never been taught to read the word right. And every Bible study they do is, sorry for to be blunt, an exercise in self-deception. Is that a bit hard? I'm sorry. But that's why we must learn from one another. So that we practice the wrong thing. So that we don't make the wrong way of studying scripture permanent. Because the problem is, you can only teach others what you do. But you can only do what you learn. So if you learn the wrong thing, you're going to do the wrong thing. And you're going to teach the wrong thing. So come and learn how to study the word correctly. Learn how to study the word correctly. Now, it says here, um, he had set his heart. And notice the perfect tense there. He had, something he'd already done. Even when he was in Babylon, where, it's, where he was so busy and with so many distractions, he had set his heart on studying, doing, and, and, and teaching the word. And, and the word set there means to establish, to fix, to focus. In other words, it speaks of two things for me. It speaks of, number one, the intensity of the focus of his heart. And number two, it speaks of the duration. He had set his heart. In other words, he focused his heart on this. This is what I'm focusing on. This is what I want to do with my life. And if you focus, if you set your heart like Ezra on studying, doing, and teaching the Word of God, you can't really go wrong. There was a, a great man of God. Um, he had his mistakes. Um, but he was, he was a, it was a really powerfully used by God, called John G. Lake. He, he actually started, he came to South Africa, I um, can't remember when, I think it was in the, either in the 1800s, late 1800s or early 1900s. Um, but in five years, he was here for only about five years, and the whole RGS, AFM, and ZCC churches, millions of people come from that five years of ministry in South Africa. And you know what he said? He said, 
I am done. And I think he said when he was here in South Africa, he said, I am done with everything in life except the proclamation and demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like Ezra, he had set his heart to study, to do, and to teach the word of God. Powerful. Powerful. So it set his, uh, we, must, we must also set our hearts like that. Um, and, and notice here, just a principle. And this is, I think, very important and very powerful. Because so often, you know, especially at the beginning of a new year, we make all kinds of New Year's resolutions. And you know what our New Year's resolutions focus on? The external. Stuff that we do. I want to exercise more. I want to do this more, that more. It doesn't focus on the internal. You know why so many New Year's resolutions don't last? <laughs> Because they focus on the external and not on the internal. Can you see where, where Ezra's focus was? It says he set his heart, yes, to do certain things on the outside. Study, doing, and teaching. Those are external behaviors. But it started not with the external actions, but with the internal attitude. Because your external actions will follow your internal attitude. That's a rule of life. That's an infallible rule of life. If you don't change the inside, the out, any change on the outside won't last. It won't be sustainable. It won't work. And you'll every year make those New Year's resolutions. I'm going to exercise more. I'm going to do this more. I'm going to do that more. But you're trying to change your actions without changing your attitudes. Doesn't work. Set your heart. Set your heart. Don't just try and change your actions. First change your attitude and then your actions will follow along with it. So he set his heart, um, and, and here I want you to, I just want to quickly read, and I, I think I've got it up there on the screen, Ezra 1, verse 1 and 5. I just want you to notice something. It says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, um, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Let me just read a little bit for you. It says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And then verse 5 says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses uh, of Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes, and the priests and uh, the Levites, everyone whose spirit the Lord had stirred up, to rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Um, so God moved their hearts. God stirred their spirits. And because of that, they went back to Jerusalem. And Ezra, I mean, this, the, those first verses sort of set the stage for the whole book. Ezra was one of those people whose hearts had been moved by God, whose spirit has been stirred by God. So here yeah, I want you to notice something very interesting. On the one hand, you have God moving people's hearts. Something that he does. But on the other hand, you have Ezra setting his heart. God didn't set his heart to study, do, and teach. Ezra had set his heart. So you have those things working together. Now, I don't want to get too complicated about this, but I just want to draw out two quick implications of that. The fact that there's both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. What does that mean for us? What does it mean that... On the one hand, I have a responsibility to set my heart, but on the other hand, God also moves my heart. What does that mean? It means, two th it means more than this, but two things that it means is, number one, when I set my heart to do God's will, I can do it with confidence, knowing that it's not just me doing it. There's divine power backing up, working in my heart to do what I've set my heart to do. I'm not alone. 
God is busy moving my heart as I set my heart. Because God doesn't work, God's will doesn't function apart from my will in my life. It functions through my will. God doesn't force me to do what I don't want to do. God makes me do, makes me want to do what he wants me to do. God moves my heart so that I can set my heart. And when I set my heart, I can do it with confidence. I really want you to get this. If you decide you want to be like Ezra and you want to set your heart this morning, you can do it with confidence, knowing that God is already working in your heart, already moving your heart in order for you to set your heart. He doesn't just leave you to yourself. So just the confidence that comes from that. But secondly, also the thankfulness. When I do set my heart, on the word of God. And when I do experience the good hand of God in my life, and when I do experience good success, I can turn around and just say, God, thank you. Because even though I set my heart, you moved my heart. And I give you all the glory. I cannot take credit for this. I cannot say that, you know, it was me and I'm better than anyone else. I give thanks to you because you were good to me. You were good to me. So confidence and thankfulness. I just want you to remember those two things. Now just in closing, um, what does a priest do? And I just want to, I think I have the scripture up there, Deuteronomy 33 verse 10. You can just uh, quickly bring it up. It says, and, and this is Moses sort of at the end of his life, just before his death, just before the Israelites in, in the book of Deuteronomy enter into the promised land, cross the Jordan, enter the promised land. Um, Moses prophesies, he says, and to Levi, which is um, the tribe from which the Levites obviously, but also the priests. Aaron, both Moses and Aaron were, were, were Levites, so from which the priests come. Um, and of Levi, he said, they shall, tell, they shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law, and they shall put incense before you and hold burnt offerings on your altar. And, and that's such a nice summary of what priests do. What is the function of a priest? The two main functions is, number one, to teach the law of God, and number two, to make sacrifices according to that law. In other words, let me sum it up in this way, and I think this is quite a nice way of seeing it. A priest is someone who teaches the people of God the will of God through the word of God, what to do, and then he also teaches them how they must respond when they fail to do that. Because that's why you need sacrifices, right? Is <laughs> when you fail to obey the word of God, then you need sacrifices to atone for your guilt. That, those are the two main things that priests do. And Ezra, it says, was descended from Aaron, the chief priest. He was a priest coming back to establish the temple of God for exactly this. So that the word of God can be taught to Israel and so that sacrifices could be made right. But Ezra is a priest, like all the other priests in the Bible, only point to the ultimate priest, who is Jesus, the ultimate high priest. Jesus is like Ezra on steroids. Okay? He's the ultimate priest coming to establish the ultimate temple by ultimately giving God's word to us and saving us through the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus is like Ezra on steroids, the ultimate priest establishing the ultimate temple through the ultimate commitment to the law and to sacrifice. And what I want you to see here is just two things. Number one, Ezra had set his heart to study, do, and teach the law of God. If that is true for Ezra, how much more is it true of Jesus? I mean, 
Ezra's setting of his heart is but a pale shadow of Jesus setting of his heart. What did Jesus set his heart to do? To study the law? To obey the law? And where Ezra failed, even though it set his heart, failed sometimes to, to do the law, Jesus never did. But he's also set his heart to teach us the law. Jesus, the priest, the ultimate high priest, has set his heart to teach you the law. Do you know how committed Jesus is to teaching you the law? He has set his heart on it. That is what he's come to do. So committed is he that he's given his spirit and through his spirit. I mean, Ezra had the law on the outside. Jesus has through his spirit written his law on your heart. According to Jeremiah 31. And according to um, 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul quotes from Jeremiah 31. He says the, the new covenant law is not written on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of our heart. That is how committed Jesus is to teaching us the law. But not only that, not only is he the ultimate priest, but he makes us a kingdom of priests. The kingdom of God is the only kingdom of priests. All other kingdoms are kingdoms that have priests. All other kingdoms, you have priests, spiritual elite, who mediate between the laity and, and God. The one kingdom and the only kingdom that doesn't, is not a kingdom with priests, but a kingdom of priests is the kingdom of God where everyone is a priest, where everyone can be like Ezra, and more than that, where everyone can be like Jesus, the ultimate priest, and study, do, and teach the law of the Lord. And if Jesus, I mean, we would be wise to set our hearts on what God sets his heart on. We would be wise to set our hearts on what Jesus sets his heart on. And he set his heart on studying, doing, and teaching the law, and we should do the same. So I just want you to, to close your eyes this morning, and, and you, uh, please stand with me. Just remember, you, you, you can set your heart to study the Word of God without seeking God, but you cannot seek God without setting your heart to study His Word. You cannot. And if you want, like Ezra, to experience the good hand of the Lord your God on your life, then make the same, set your heart on the same thing Ezra set his hands on. And then you will experience the good success that Ezra experienced. In other words, God, meaningful success, where God, God's good hand upon you causes you to receive, to be granted all that you need to fulfill God's calling on your life, to fulfill what he has decreed, and to be a blessing to his people like Ezra was. Just close your eyes. And I want you to, at the beginning of this here, I want to encourage you, set your heart on those things. Set your heart on studying, doing, and teaching God's word. Right now, just in your own words, just do that. Just say, Lord, I set my heart. And, and if you're struggling with that, ask him to help you. Ask him to help you. And just a... Just a warning. The, the problem is not just that our hearts are neutral and we have to set them on something. The problem is our hearts are already set on something. And maybe the Holy Spirit is right now convicting you of something else that your heart is set on, that you have to take your heart off. Maybe your heart is set on your happiness at the expense of everyone else. Maybe your heart is set on your fame like the Pharisees and, your, and people being impressed with you. Maybe your heart is set on all kinds of other stuff. 
selfish stuff, then it's not, you won't be able to set your heart on God and on his word unless you first say, I take my heart off all the other stuff so that I can set it on God and in his word, on seeking God by studying, doing and teaching his word. So just do that. Just take your heart off anything else that it's set on and be honest with the Lord and set it on the Lord and on his word. Yes, Father God, we just come to you in Jesus' name and we come in our weakness, in our humanness, in our frailty, even in our fallenness, Lord, our tendency towards sin, Lord, and sinfulness. And we come to you and we say, thank you, Lord, that you move our hearts towards you so that we can set our hearts on you. And we choose to do that this morning. We choose, Lord, to, instead of focusing our hearts on all the other things that the world is focused on and that the world is encouraging us to focus our hearts on, to set our hearts on, we want to set our hearts on you and on your word. We want to focus. We want to be like, like that light, Lord, shining through the magnifying glass, Lord. Let, let your Holy Spirit come as the divine magnifying glass and focus our hearts on what it's supposed to be focused on. Lord, even with a laser focus, Lord, upon you and your word. Please change our hearts where they need to be changed. Please soften our hearts where they've become hard. Please encourage our hearts where they've become discouraged. Thank you, Lord, that we can set our hearts with confidence knowing that you are busy moving our hearts. And we pray that your name will be glorified through it. Lord, I just want to pray your blessing over every person here this morning, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that during this year and in years to come, they, they will all experience meaningful success. Not the meaningless success of this world, but meaningful success. Because like Ezra, they had set their hearts to study, and do, and teach your word. In Jesus' name, I pray your blessing over them. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Johannesburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg. gave